Professor Ma Gochi, who is a professor of history and political science and the John Yaremko Chair of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Toronto. His work includes Central European Nationality, specifically Ukraine and Carpatho-Ruthenia, and we're very excited to have you here on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. So my questions largely focus on the role of Carpatho-Rusin's and as a national identity. In your book, With Their Back to the Mountains, A History of Carpathian Rus and Carpatho-Rusines, you talk about how Carpatho-Rusines are an ideal example of people being of a people being made before our eyes. Would you mind speaking to that and how they serve as an ideal example of that? Yes, the reason I, I formulated it in that way is, is because uh, Carpatho-Rusines have existed like many peoples in Europe. Uh, living on their territories for roughly a thousand years, give or take, maybe longer, and like many peoples on the European continent, and I might add not only in Central and Eastern Europe, but in Western Europe as well, uh, became aware of a, a specific identity other than religious or regional in the course of the 19th century, sometimes well into the early 20th century, as a result of the activity of their local intelligentsias. And so Carpatho-Rusins, like the Basques, like the Walloons, like the Frisians uh, in Western Europe, uh, fall into this category uh, of peoples, peoples who gathered a distinct national identity or acquired a distinct national identity in the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries. In the case of Carpatho-Rusins, however, there had always been a debate as to their relationship to the rest of the East Slavic world in particular. And without going into detail, at the close of World War II, uh, when the main component of the historical territory of Carpathian Rus, not all of it, but the main component, was annexed to the Soviet Union uh, as a result of a treaty between the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia, and the Soviet Union uh, and Soviet Ukraine, uh, into which this territory was placed, uh, had a already fixed position on who these people were. And that was established way back in 1924 uh, at the Comintern and then subsequently the local Communist Party, that from the perspective of Soviet ideologists, Ukrainian, Russian, whatever, Carpatho-Rusins are an a branch of the Ukrainian nationality, that they do not have their own distinct language, uh, that they just speak dialects of the Ukrainian language, and following Soviet not only uh, ideological views, uh, but practice, the Soviets simply banned Carpatho-Rusins. It was illegal to identify yourself as a Carpatho-Rusin. Uh, the language which had developed already before the Soviets came to power including standardized forms used in schools, was banned. And uh, that remained the situation, not only in the Soviet Union, but also among those communities that lived outside of the Soviet Union, in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, uh, in Hungary. Uh, why? And in Romania, for that matter. Why? Because those countries were satellite countries of the Soviet Union, and they followed 
who were expected to follow uh, the Soviet interpretation or understanding of who Carpathian Rusins were or were not. As a result of which, this nationality was banned in all of the uh, in their historic homeland by all of the states that rule that historic homeland. And that was the situation that prevailed until the revolutions of 1989, when everything changed. And from that standpoint, we have seen since 1989 the rebirth, if you will, of uh, a Carpathian nationality and standardized la uh, language uh, in all of the countries where uh, they live. And it's this process that is still going on and has been going on for the last 30 years that one can speak of a nationality in the making before our very eyes. And you yourself have taken on a certain role within that creation of a national identity. I've heard other people refer to you as the Thomas Masaryk of Carpathoruthenia. I don't know how you feel about that as a label, but you do have a very strong sense of their national identity. How did you come to be so interested in Carpathoruthenia? Well, if I am described by some as the Thomas, uh, Thomas Masaryk of Carpathoruthenia, uh, then that is actually a great honor, uh, since uh, comparing me to Thomas Masaryk, uh, whom, for whom I have always had great respect as this outstanding humanitarian uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, makes me uh, very uh, happy. So how do I feel about the label uh, or the analogy? It's fine. Go right on. Uh, with regard to my role in this uh, movement, because it definitely is a movement since 1989, uh, that came actually, yes, and I have played this role. Uh, let's not have false modesty. I'm beginning to think I'm underpaid. <laughs> it is related to not my initiating that process, but rather people in the homeland initiating it, because I had been uh, researching and studying Carpathorusans uh, ever since the late 1960s in the United States. It was the theme of my doctoral dissertation at Princeton, uh, which was later then transformed into, expanded the dissertation significantly and, and into a major 600-page monograph that was published by Harvard University Press in 1978. Um, and that was one of several other kinds of uh, books about language of this area, several phrase books, for instance, about various aspects of the national movement, the history of this, the immigrants from this area in North America. And after 1989, uh, much of this material became, and even slightly before 1989, it became known to people in the European homeland. And so when they had an opportunity to express themselves openly without restrictions from the communist governments in the countries where they lived, then they actually used my existing literature as a justification for their existence. And this was also an era in the 1990s when many of us 
from North America who are specialists in this part of the world were receiving invitations right, left, and center from uh, scholarly institutions, government institutions in the new post-communist Czechoslovakia or Poland or Hungary to go come, give lecture, advise, etc., etc. And so that's how, in that sense, I got drawn into this this process. And having had experience in studying national movements or embryonic national movements, that was my my whole uh, first monograph was about, uh, I then help them with advice of how to do this. What future do you see for the movement going forward at this point? Do you see it continuing along the same trajectory? Is there any angling for an independent homeland, or is it more of a cultural identity at this point? Let's dispense of one thing immediately. Not all national movements need to or do lead to political independence. And one often assumes that that's the case, but that's simply not the case. And I already mentioned earlier on several stateless nationalities in Europe, in Western Europe, who have never had their own state or political independence and will, for all intents and purposes, will never. So Carpathian Russians fall into this uh, uh, situation. There's never been a, a desire, except for a few very radical types uh, in, 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 in Soviet Transcarpathia, post-Soviet Transcarpathia, Transcarpathia in Ukraine, who spoke about and emphasized uh, political distinctiveness. Even there, it's not independence for the most part. It's really autonomy, a renewal of autonomy that they had that region had in the Czechoslovakia. The movement is primarily a cultural one with the, uh, with the need to uh, have their national distinctiveness recognized officially by the countries in which they live uh, with the appropriate assistance from the government for all kinds of uh, um, cultural institutions, whether museums or theaters or, uh, or institutes at, or chairs at universities, etc. And, and actually... The long and short of it, this is no longer a movement in many ways. It's a success story. Because Carpathian Russians have been recognized officially in all the countries where they live, except one. So there maybe it's still a movement. Uh, but have been recognized officially into the constitutions of the countries listed, receive full support from the government for all their activity in Poland, in Slovakia, in in the Czech Republic as well, in Hungary, in Romania, and have always had this this situation in Serbia. So in that sense, uh, what is now going on is not necessarily a movement that still has to achieve something, with the exception in little ways in Ukraine, but a movement that has already achieved and now needs to continue the work of convincing large portions of their own Carpathian Russian population that had succumbed during those 40 years of communist rule to assimilation, assimilation to the state nationalities, whether Poles, Polish, or, or Slovak, or Hungarian, and even that is being turned around. It's a rare case. Everyone thinks that national assimilation is a one-way street. Once you assimilate, you're lost. In the case of Carpathian Russians, it's a reverse situation, somewhat like the Welsh. 
nice to have a success story in the history of national identities in Eastern Europe. So switching gears very quickly while we wrap up, um, one of the reasons you've come to the role of Central European American immigrants in nation building post-World War I. Beyond Carpatho-Russines generally, how significant a role do you see that community having had um, roughly 100 years ago? Well, I guess the simplest and the most outstanding case is that Czechoslovakia was created in Pittsburgh. It's comforting to know that. What the devil is that supposed to mean? Uh, in May 1918, Masaryk, uh, on his visit after uh, leaving uh, the Russian Empire, uh, wound up in, uh, uh, together with Benish uh, and Stefanik talking, going, running around and, and meeting with uh, Czech and Slovak immigrant groups in North America, and uh, they signed this Pittsburgh Agreement uh, in, in May uh, 1918. Carpathia uh, Rusins weren't part of that process, but a couple of months later, they joined that process in the context of being invited and told by none other than President Wilson, in the case of the leading Carpathia Rusin leader, uh, to meet with Masaryk uh, and join the Mid-European Democratic Union, which took place in Philadelphia in November, uh, pardon, in late October of 1918. And here you had representatives from, I think, 15, 16 uh, stateless nationalities uh, uh, that were addressing what should be their future uh, in what was already winding down the last weeks of the war and uh, what was going to happen during the, the, during the, the peace talks, effectively. Uh, so m much of this, much of the groundwork for the ideas of creating Czechoslovakia, for creating Yugoslavia, I might add, uh, let alone America's position, the United States' position on Poland in, in the 14 points, uh, was, uh, uh, was set here uh, uh, in the immigration, specifically in the United States. And some groups were successful like the Czechs and the Slovaks and the Poles, and other groups were not successful, despite the fact that they were also lobbying and part of this process in the United States, for instance, Ukrainians. Um, and one of the things that I will be mentioning tomorrow is, is that uh, some groups thought they were successful, but then in the end they had problems. So the, creators, the groups that created uh, Yugoslavia... Uh, two were left out, actually, as distinct nationalities, even, one, even though one had its own state, the Montenegrins, uh, and the other non-existent nationality at the time, from the standpoint of the rest of the Yugoslav peoples, were the Macedonians. It was not a total success story uh, for all of those immigrant groups who were active uh, among the immigration after, uh, after World War I, but for several it was. Most of what goes on in the world ain't in a book. It's more fun this way. Wonderful. Well, I guess my last question, not quite as uh, fixed, but is there anything you're currently working on that you'd like to discuss? Any sort of future things to look for? I'm in a position at this stage in my career in which uh, some of, most of the things that I wanted to do, I have succeeded in doing. What do you mean? Well, I don't know what I have, 43 books, 44 books, uh, of which I'm the author of 
sole author by, I think, 33. And then, so all of the projects that I had wanted to do, I have completed. The one that I haven't completed and wanted to do is History of Art, uh, painting and sculpture uh, in, among Carpathorusans. And also I was asked, and I've been considering this, to do, I've been asked to do a general history of the Slavs which uh, we don't really have one of a recent vintage uh, in English. I might do that. Uh, but most of my activity at the present is, uh, is I'm preoccupied with overseeing new editions of my existing work. So just last year, the third revised edition of the Historical Atlas of Central Europe appeared, several new maps, new data of various kinds. And then a lot of translations. So, you know, I have to oversee translations of With Their Backs to the Mountains, which came out in Slovak. Now it's coming out in Polish. The Historical Atlas is coming out in Macedonian. Uh, the, my illustrated history of Ukraine is coming out in Turkish. Uh, and uh, with all of these languages and whatever other ones that I can't even know, several books are coming out in Ukrainian. I have to look at this stuff, and it takes an incredible amount of time, let alone if you start to revise it. The only one that I'm slightly liberated from is Turkish, because I don't know Turkish. I studied it, but don't really know it. So other than having to check the maps, I'm liberated from that. But that, that's, a great, that's a great task. It takes a lot of time in doing that. But the two new projects are a history of art and uh, painting and sculpture, Carpetrus and painting and sculpture, and the general history of the Slavs. I'm all for that. Great. Well, sounds like we have a lot to look forward to. Dr. Magoji, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and speaking to us. My pleasure, and good luck to all of you in your world in Texas, at the University of Texas in Austin. In Austin. Adams, yeah, yeah. There you go. Thank you. Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.